Welcome back to this Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. Sponsored by What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, the New York Times bestselling book by Blackstone Stephen Schwartzman. I'm Dan Permack. On today's show, allegations of Chinese espionage at a U.S. pension fund and a big day for CEO swaps. But first, the dawn of space tourism. So it has been a few years since billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, and Elon Musk promised to begin flying rich folks into orbit, or at least into suborbit. 2020 is when it's actually supposed to begin happening. Both Bezos's Blue Origin and Branson's Virgin Galactic have pledged to have their first paying customers blast off by year end, while Musk's SpaceX is targeting 2021. Why it matters isn't just because it satisfies the childhood dreams of a select group of billionaires and their millionaire clientele. It's because the accompanying media coverage could refuel general American interest in space, thus helping to further build the space industry's non-tourism business. You know, stuff like launching communication satellites and scientific exploration. One big question, though, is oversight. The FAA is officially in charge of making sure these flights are safe, but also has ceded much of its power so far to the private spaceflight companies themselves. Some shades of Boeing there, and obviously raises the stakes for everyone. The bottom line? There is a lot riding on these rockets. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Axios Space Editor Miriam Kramer. But first, this. In the New York Times bestselling book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman shares some of his lessons from creating and building one of the world's leading investment firms. Recommended by Jack Welch, Janet Yellen, Ray Dalio, and more. Get the book on Amazon or at readwhatittakes.com. We're joined now by Miriam Kramer, Axios Space Editor. So Miriam, let's start with the economics of this. Is space tourism going to become really big business in the context kind of of aerospace, or is it more kind of a valuable because of the PR boost it will give to space as an industry? Yeah, I think it's more the latter. I think that a lot of folks in the space industry these days are trying to find ways to sort of make the general public talk about space more. And I think that a lot of people are seeing space tourism especially as the way to kind of bring that into the public mind in a more prominent way than it is today. Is that a generational thing? You know, you think about the people who are really, you know, involved right now, and it's partially because they're billionaires, but, you know, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, they are all of a certain generation. Is there a feeling within the space industry that, for lack of a better term, kind of millennials, Gen Z, space just isn't as exciting a thing for them, and that is the talent base of the present and future? I think so. I mean, I think that part of it, too, is that, you know, millennials, we didn't, like, see the moon landing. It's like, it's all very speculative to us. Like, a lot of us remember the space shuttle era, but most of us remember the end of the space shuttle era. There's really this lack of human spaceflight, especially in the U.S., that I think is affecting us, and I think it is a generational thing. If space tourism works, if Blue Origin, if Virgin Galactic do start basically throwing, you know, millionaires and billionaires, at least at the beginning, up into space, what does that mean, not just for talent and, and for uh, reputation, but does that actually end up changing the infrastructure, kind of the U.S. Space infrastructure? I think it could. With suborbital space, there are a lot of sort of scientific elements of it that could help. Like there are researchers who want to actually send their payloads up and test them in suborbit. So that would help the space industry as a whole. But I think that a lot of people see it as kind of like a gateway drug to orbital tourism. Can you break that down for me a little bit? Imagine I am a passenger. I am going to go up. What am I experiencing in suborbital compared to orbital? Or how are my experiences of those two things different, theoretically? Yeah, so they are very different. So with suborbital space, you basically will take a rocket ride or, you know, a, a rocket plane up to either, you know, 
about 50 miles or about 62 miles, depending on like your definition of space. And from there, you're going to like see the earth against the blackness of space and experience maybe five minutes of weightlessness at a time. And then, you know, you're going to come right back down. That's about an 11 minute trip. And that's your suborbital flight. Like you don't circle the earth. It's pretty fast, but you still kind of get like a taste of what space flight is like. Orbital, on the other hand, is a, much more expensive. <laughs> to get to the space station, it's like $50 million at the minimum. But that is, you know, you're flying on like a big rocket. You're heading up either to a destination or you're free flying. And you're, you're circling the Earth. Like you are in a capsule looking down at the Earth in space. Like you're up there. You're experiencing microgravity for hours, if not days at a time. So that's sort of the breakdown between the two. A suborbital flight is going to run you about $250,000. An orbital flight, like I said, millions. From a technical perspective right now, the difference between suborbital and orbital, and, and obviously, you know, the Virgin Galactic Blue Origin are currently promising suborbital, you know, by end of year. Is it just the cost thing or is it also technical? In other words, if I had $50 million that I wanted to give Blue Origin, theoretically, do they have the technology to do it? No. So it is technical. In order to get into orbit, you need to go very fast and only certain rockets can do that. So like SpaceX could probably, once they launch people, could launch you to orbit. Blue Origin at the moment cannot, even though they are building a rocket that they say could eventually. The degree of difficulty is exponential between suborbital versus orbital. There's two uh, big uh, prohibitive things when it comes to space tourism this year and for the next kind of foreseeable future. One, obviously, as we discussed, is cost. The other, obviously, is safety. You know, spaceflight always has been historically a government-run thing. Is the FAA the one here who's technically going to decide whether Branson's, you know, rocket is good to go or who makes that determination? And is there a government agency that really has the capability to make those determinations on something like this? Yeah. So the FAA is the regulatory body for these companies at the moment. The interesting thing is that there is a moratorium in place on rulemaking from the FAA until 2023 for these companies. Why is there a moratorium? industry lobby con- Congress. <laughs> so they got a moratorium. But I think that uh, there is a, a, a good reason behind it. Basically, these companies need a chance to kind of get off the ground and get their systems flying and be able to work out the kinks in some ways before the design and safety of them are really heavily regulated, which they argue those regulations could stifle the growth, basically. I understand making that argument when you're simply sending, you know, stuffed animals up in these rockets. But once you've got actual people, that's a hell of an argument to be made, particularly paying customers. The thing is, I think what these companies do have on their side is the fact that, like, they really don't want to kill anyone, just to put it really bluntly. Well, neither did Boeing. Is there any push? Take the Boeing situation, right, where the the biggest criticism against the FAA was it was too cozy and it basically let Boeing and the aircraft manufacturers write the rules. Is the FAA a little bit concerned here that they're going to have people? I mean, 2023, you could be talking about two full years of people flying. Is there any pushback right now to say, hey, wait a minute, you guys have moved a little faster than we thought. We need to revisit the moratorium? Yeah, I mean, there are some folks outside of industry that are trying to get those rules put back into place. I think that once these companies start flying, you're going to start seeing more of that. So I'm, I'm really curious once they have people on board, like what those narratives are going to be as like they start actually flying folks. Miriam, final safety question for you. If money was no object and Richard Branson came to you and said, hey, Miriam, you want to come on the first flight with me? Do you go? <laughs> so my answer would have been very different about a year ago, but I'm a one-year-old kid. So I think my answer at the moment is probably no. <laughs> Fair enough. Miriam Kramer, Axios Space Editor, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. My final two right after this. 
In the New York Times bestselling book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence, Blackstone's Stephen Schwartzman shares some of his lessons from creating and building one of the world's leading investment firms. Recommended by Jack Welch, Janet Yellen, Ray Dalio, and more. Get the book on Amazon or at readwhatittakes.com. Now it's time for my final two. And first up is a controversy erupting over CalPERS, the nation's largest public pension system. An Indiana congressman named Jim Banks claims that CalPERS' chief investment officer is basically a spy for the Chinese government, funneling billions of dollars of pensioner money into Chinese companies, some of which provide equipment to the Chinese military and ipso facto, therefore, kind of raise our taxes because we spend more on our military to match China's military. And Banks is making these claims pretty loudly, both via social media posts that have been amplified by some of his congressional congressional colleagues, plus a bunch of Fox News hits, including a recent primetime spot with Tucker Carlson. So I dig into all of this in today's pro rata newsletter, signup.axios.com. But the big thing to know is that there is almost no meat on Banks's bone. The chief investment officer, Ben Meng, doesn't actually direct any money into Chinese companies because CalPERS doesn't buy stocks itself. It buys into passive indexes managed by third parties. Now, it sometimes invests in active managers, but again, those are third parties. Meng doesn't pick stocks any more than you or I pick stocks via our 401ks. It's also worth noting that while Meng was born in China and did work for a Chinese government pension system in between stints at CalPERS, he is a U.S. citizen. Now, Banks is among several GOP congressmen who basically want U.S. investors to divest from China. But if that's what they want, they should take it up with President Trump or Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, not with pension managers in Sacramento. And finally, nearly lost in the coronavirus-led stock market drop yesterday were four CEO switches at big-name companies, Disney, Thomson Reuters, Salesforce, Force and MasterCard. Why it matters is that the CEO carousel seems to be accelerating. Last month, there were 219 CEO swaps, a 37% increase from December, and both of those months set new records, according to outplacement firm Challenger Gray and Christmas. It's unclear yet if February will also give us a new high watermark, although the leap year sure won't hurt its chances. When we're done, big thanks for listening, and to my producers Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national Tell a Fairy Tale Day. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.